The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. 8474. This morning, I have the privilege of introducing our chapel speaker, the Reverend James Lee, is currently the senior pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in La Jolla, California, a church where he planted and now has been pastoring now for 21 years. And in a day and age where people fly from one ministry to another, it's so encouraging to see his faithfulness at this church. I've known James for many years. Uh, not only is he an older brother in the faith, uh, but he's a graduate of this institution, graduated from here in 1991, I believe that is, uh, and has been faithfully pastoring and ministering in this area as a member of our presbytery. And so it's been a delight to be able to work with him in the Candidates and Credentials Committee uh, with all of his wisdom and grace. And so we're delighted to have you uh, at the pulpit this morning. Good morning. It's good to be here with you. And uh, I'm just thankful for the invitation to come and share God's word with you. Uh, So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. This is the reading of God's word. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. In this passage we just read, we have a beautiful prayer of Paul's, which is theologically so rich and pastorally so warm and generous. But at the risk of failing Dr. Julius and Kim and Dr. Johnson's uh, preaching class. My purpose today is not to expound on the content of Paul's prayer. I'd like us to take a step back and notice something that is so very basic that we can easily miss, and yet so very important. My focus today is not so much what Paul prayed, but that he prayed. Not so much what Paul prayed, but that he prayed. We know Paul to be a passionate, tireless herald of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gloried in his privilege to preach the gospel despite all the mockery and ridicule that the unbelieving world threw at him. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I am eager to preach the gospel, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God 
for salvation to everyone who believes. So deeply aware of the privilege and urgency of preaching the gospel, he even said, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He never forgot the grace of his Lord, who delivered him so radically from the error of his ways and entrusted to him the task of carrying Christ's name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Serving his gracious Lord faithfully, Paul was a man of action. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. A man of action, a tireless preacher of the gospel. This is the Paul we are familiar with. But it would be amiss for us not to also see Paul, the man of prayer. Call to mind the glorious doxologies and thanksgivings with which he begins each of his letters. Some of his epistles contain his prayers for the saints. Even apart from these, we get many glimpses into his prayer life, how important prayer was in his ministry, how prayer was a constant part of his life and ministry. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Need I say any more? I may have overdone it in quoting these passages, but I wanted to impress in our minds and hearts how Paul's life and ministry was drenched in prayer. We do not see any tension between Paul the preacher and Paul the man of prayer. Paul the man of action and Paul the man of prayer. How important it is for us to see this because I think oftentimes we see these two character traits as mutually exclusive. Why do we find it difficult to pray? In the midst of our busy schedule, we say to ourselves that we have no time to pray. Even when it comes to our ministry, we find it much easier to spend time getting our sermons and Bible studies ready than to spend time in prayer. It's a tough battle, isn't it? We live in a culture in which busyness is a virtue. We feel like our life doesn't amount to much if our calendar is not packed with meetings and appointments and things to do. If our smartphone doesn't go off with text and email and Facebook notifications all the time. We shouldn't be surprised by this phenomenon in the city of man. What do we observe in Genesis 4 in the genealogy of Cain? 
Cain's descendants were busy at work, developing civilization, fortifying the city of man. Why? Because they were cast out of the presence of God. Having no hope of heaven and without God in the world, they had to fend for themselves in this fallen world. And they were determined to make heaven of this world, and they were busy at it. On the other hand, what do we learn about the descendants of Seth, the godly line? We don't have any description of them, except that they began to call upon the name of the Lord. Surely they did not just pray all the time. They had to work hard to survive in the fallen world, I'm sure. But their devotion to prayer was what distinguished them from the Canaanites. While the Canaanites, Canaanites were busy looking down, working the field with their hands, the Sethites looked up to heaven and called upon the name of the Lord. Thereby they acknowledged, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. What's more, consider the nature and aim of Christian ministry. It is spiritual in nature. Its aim is to transform the hearts of man. Who is adequate for this? When I was young and just got reformed, I thought just the beauty of the reformed doctrine will just change people's minds all the time. And as I deal with people more and more, even my children, I become more and more humbled. Who is adequate to transform the hearts of men? We dare not trust our own wisdom, eloquence, not even the impeccable logic of Reformed theology. And what about the gospel of Jesus Christ perfectly and winsomely presented? But a pig, when it is dead, has no interest whatsoever in his feed. So is the natural man with regard to the gospel, isn't it? Unless he is born again. And how can anyone be born again only when the life-giving spirit of God blows over him according to his sovereign will and choice? Of course, the spirit uses God's word to bring about regeneration. God can use the mouth of even a child to convert a most hardened sinner. But God doesn't want to accomplish his purpose in spite of us, but through us. To that end, our posture cannot be that of indifference. Oh, well, if God wants it to happen, it will happen no matter how well or badly I do it. Rather, our posture has to be that of humble, constant reliance upon God. And what better expresses this posture of humility and dependence than prayer? We see in today's passage that Paul not only preached and taught the whole counsel of God, he also prayed that the saints would understand and believe what he had taught them. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Could it be that the more he ministered, 
the more he saw the hardness of human heart, which cannot be broken or changed by anything other than the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. So the more he ministered, the more he saw the need to bow his knees before the Father to anoint his ministry and make it efficacious. And the more he prayed, the more his passion and zeal was fueled by the power of God to preach the gospel with all boldness and clarity. Then why do we see in our own life such a big gap and dichotomy between being a man or woman of action and a man and woman of prayer? A man or woman of the word and a man or women of prayer. Am I wrong to say that Reformed churches are known for their faithful preaching and sound doctrines and insightful Bible studies, but not really for their prayer? There may even be many Bible studies on prayer, but prayer meetings are poorly attended. And this is a big struggle in our church as well. So I'm not speaking as a know-it-all and got-everything-together pastor, but as someone who is deeply convicted by this and burdened by this. And if I may, I'd like to share the difficulties I had, and hopefully it will help you in this area. I grew up in a Buddhist home. My grandmother was a very devout Buddhist, but early on she had a stroke and half her body was paralyzed. And what I remember very distinctly from my early childhood is whenever I woke up early, I know that my my grandmother was praying. Between 4 a.m. to 6 a.m., she prayed every day for two hours to be healed. And then I got converted in America in a Korean-Armenian church. Prayer was huge in that church. Early morning prayer meetings at 5.30 a.m. every morning all-night prayer vigils once every month, admit that there were a lot of problems. Coercion through guilt trip to attend, emotionalism, misguided fervency to shake up the throne of God until we get our answer. But people came to these meetings because they were all immigrants facing enormous challenges and difficulties in a foreign land. Often they had nowhere to turn to but to God, and they desperately cried for help. I remember a lot of tears and weeping in those prayer meetings. But after I got reformed at this institution, I was profoundly changed and transformed, and I thank God for that. But I also found myself in a quandary with regard to my prayer life. Through Reformed theology, I came to glory in the sovereignty of God. From this perspective, I came to see, as never before, the significance of our Lord's prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will be done. And this is what distinguishes the Christian prayer from all the other pagan prayers, isn't it? What makes people pray so fervently in other religions? It is their desire to impose their own will on their gods, to impress and convince their gods to do what they are praying for with their persistence and with their sacrificial offerings and giving. Unfortunately, this is true even in some evangelical circles 
which are known for large prayer meetings and their emphasis on prayer. But we know better. We know it's foolish to try to change God's will. His will is eternal, unchangeable, and irrevocable. Not only that, his will for his people flows out of his infinite wisdom and his infinite love for his people, which did not even spare his only begotten son. We don't want God to change his good and gracious and wise will to do what we ask of him out of our finite knowledge and sinful desires and narrow vision and small faith. Surely what we desire is only second best at best. We should gladly seek his kingdom first and fervently desire his will to be done in our life and in our ministry, not our will to be done. His will is what is best for us. To accept his will for us is the wisest thing we can do for ourselves. The question is, is it possible to see God's will with that kind of fervency with which all these pagan prayer, uh, believers pray and Arminians pray? Can we pray because we truly, truly believe and because we are praying, not my will, but your will be done? Intellectually, we know to avoid hyper-Calvinism because it is fatalistic rather than truly predestinarian. But it is hard to shake off that fatalistic thinking in our daily life, especially in prayer, especially when praying about a difficult situation. When we pray for an overwhelming problem, when we pray for someone with a terminal disease, a young father with young children. How easy it is to just pray for God's will to be done rather than pray fervently for his healing with faith as we are called to do as elders. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. I'm not saying God will heal everybody, but we are called to pray with faith even at the face of overwhelming challenges and difficulties. And you know what? I have found it easy to hide my unbelief my lack of faith behind the sound doctrine of God's sovereignty. A difficulty arises, or God's will be done. And I think that's shameful. I know my calling as a pastor is not just to prepare impeccable sermons and Bible studies, sound in doctrine, clear, coherent, cogent, and impactful. Because I know my struggle with unbelief, self-reliance, functional atheism. Do we not find it to be so true so often that the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak? And isn't that precisely the reason that our Lord said, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. As we see these things in our hearts and in the hearts of those we minister to, how can we be so complacent in our ministry 
as not to pray with a kind of persistence and fervency which are fitting for the spiritual battle we are in. I find it enormously challenging and encouraging at the same time how our Lord came to pray. Not my will, but your will be done. Did you notice that even our Lord did not start his prayer with those words? It came at the end of a prolonged time of intense wrestling with the Father until his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. And that not just once, but three times. He didn't just nonchalantly walk into the Garden of Eden and said, your will be done because you're sovereign. No, even our Lord wrestled with God three times before he said, thy will be done. The key is not just to see God's will with our pious mouth. It is to conform our heart to his will. It may require us to be honest with God in offering up our sincere desires to the Lord first. It may require the kind of prayer that makes our sweat become like great drops of blood first before we can truly say, not my will, but your will be done. For us to struggle over the souls of men and women entrusted to our care as you see the hardness of their hearts. May all the Reformed churches be known not only for their sound doctrines, but also for their fervent prayers. After all, why did our Lord Jesus Christ came and suffer all that he suffered and died our death and experience God's abandonment on the cross? Was it not to reconcile us to God? and restore us into intimate fellowship with him. And does not our prayer exemplify this in a most beautiful and glorious way? And if we are too busy to pray, trying to be a well-known pastor or preacher, or even a good pastor, are we not missing something so crucial and central? If we are too busy to pray, because we want to be a good pastor, can we say that we are doing that for the glory of God? And if we are anxious and fearful, discouraged in our ministry, finding our heart growing bitter toward the sheep for their slowness of change, for their unwillingness to live by the word of God, and I used to get offended. I preach a sermon and I see our people not doing it. How dare do they not do it? I preach the word of God. And it is so easy to be discouraged. But if we continue in that state, is it not because we do not carry everything to God in prayer? Maybe it was the key to Paul's ministry. How, despite all the persecution and suffering he went through, 
he was not discouraged. He was not struck down because so central and constant was prayer in his life and ministry. And was it not the example of our Lord himself who took time to go away from his ministry to spend time with his heavenly Father? I hope that that richness of fellowship that we can find with our God will energize our ministry and give warmth and power and vitality to all that we do for the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of prayer, for Jesus Christ and all the sacrifice that he went through so that we might come to you, to the very throne of God in the most holy place. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the gift of prayer as we engage in this impossible task of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the salvation of men, to the transformation of men's hearts. O oh Lord, I pray that we, when we find it difficult, when we find our hearts growing discouraged, I pray, Lord, that we will find a refuge in your presence and be strengthened by your love and grace to do the work that you have entrusted us to do. To the glory of your name, to the blessing of all those who come to know us, and to our true joy and delight. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2015, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.